Hey, it's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, and we have a giveaway for you, the largest rock and roll music festival in the country. You can come uh, to our hometown, Louisville, Kentucky, and see it for yourself. It's Louder Than Life. It happens at the end of September, and all you have to do, hit the show notes, hit the link, and then tell us the five bands on this festival bill that you want to see. To illustrate, I'm going to let Murdoch do that right now. Who are the five bands you want to see at Louder Than Life in September, Murdoch? Because I want to pal with you, I will go see the Foo Fighters with you, even though... Even though I'm like, one of your bad opinions is that you don't think they're one of the greatest bands alive. Uh, that's fine. Go ahead. I've never seen Megadeth. I call I'm, BS. You've really never seen them. I've okay. never seen Megadeth. I've never seen Queens of the Stone Age. I've never seen Turnstile. Yeah. So I got to see all of those, and I really like. There's this band called Pink Shift that's from mm-hmm. Atlanta mm-hmm. Uh, that I really like, and they're I, I'm out of their demo, but I I really like them. Uh, them a lot look at the poster uh, and you can uh, tell us the five bands you want to see and you might get to do it for free on us we'll pick up your four-day passes uh it's that simple louder than life rock on keep telling stories and now let's do the show don't go to sleep mother. don't go to sleep and do me a favor don't disturb my friend he's dead tired well what the hell are you saying boss you've lost half your body sleeping i i sleep pretty hard welcome to rock and roll bedtime stories Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's your home for innuendo, rumor, and all the things you wanted to know. Did that really happen? And we lost one of the great ones. Uh, Last week, Tina Turner passed away uh, in her 80s in another country. She just decided to up and leave the U.S. Look her up online. She comes up as a Swiss artist, uh, which I just thought was funny. It doesn't say American singer or American artist. It says Swiss singer. It's hard to know where to start when we want to talk about Tina. I think for a lot of reasons. One, that body of work is enormous. The length of her career is incredibly long. And she has a lot of associations that are both noteworthy and notorious to some degree. But as I've looked back and reflected on who she was and what she accomplished yeah. uh, since her passing, I came to I came to a conclusion. Some might classify as startling that I want to get your opinion on. Yeah. Is it possible that Tina Turner was actually underrated? Yeah, sure. on On this side of the world, absolutely. And I did hear an interview with her. And she said, am I as big as Madonna in Europe? She goes, yeah, I am. Am I as big as Madonna in the United States? No, I'm not. And it's like you realize it's, wow. it's like, oh, it's like in Europe, she was a huge megastar. Yeah. The one thing with Tina that arguably for me was disarming as a younger person is the sex appeal, which yeah. um, is you don't really get away from. It's marvelous and astounding to go back and watch these videos, which we'll talk about a little bit from the early 60s when they were letting her on TV. And there's also this bonkers Rolling Stone interview that we're going to get to from 71, I believe, in which she talks a little bit about how they were pushing the envelope around what was even allowed on television and what were people what people were doing on stage, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Uh, but I ask this initial question about her being underrated as a lead up to where I want to head today in our discussion. And that comes from a question we got late last week from Carissa in Pennsylvania. Uh, here's what it says. Quote, I love the show. Thought you were the perfect pair to ask this question to in the light of the recent passing of Tina Turner. Is it true that Mick Jagger actually modeled his onstage movements and dancing off of Tina Turner. I don't want to ruin any possible hints, but I do have an exhibit A to launch whenever we want to talk about oh, that. Okay. Okay. Let's deal with but, Yeah. Before we attempt to answer this and before yeah. you give us exhibit A, I do feel like we need to discuss the gravity of this. This is this is like a pretty 
not I won't say accusation, but this is a pretty big statement. Right. So in the upper echelon of rock and roll music, if you're talking, if this is actually a thing, you could make an argument that a lot of what the definition of rock and roll and what people think about it is wrapped up in Jagger's dancing. Yeah, well, there's like a phrase really in is. our popular lexicon, semi-recently cemented through song, that actually defines sexiness as having, quote, moves like Jagger. Right. Slide into the DMs, won't you creepy <laughs> jerk from Maroon 5? Did you ever read the DMs that he sent girls? Uh, no, no. I, did, I, you read, did you read his apology? I do not read other people's DMs, and I just try to accept apologies without really thinking about them. I, did, I don't know why. I was looking at something about moves like Jagger, and I, that came up, and I was like, oh, that's right. He like flirted with girls on Instagram, and one of them, one of the messages was like, think I'm going to have to see that booty. Uh, <laughs> and then there was something else. This is nice. I mean, he he flirts like a sixth grader. I mean, I'm I'm sort of into the charmingness of that. And his his apology was so intense, I think, because he said, I apologize and I have no business flirting with anyone other than my wife. Mm, And I was like, good luck. (laughs) Keep your shirt on. But look, if we if we take if we take this away, this moves like Jagger situation like mix authority regarding these moves and say that it came from a black woman from america that he took on tour with him it should change the rock and roll narrative and here's where she constantly to me is an underrated artist based on her influence and then um i mean does is what's the first person you think of doing mick jagger impressions i think of dana carvey yeah, I just think of people yeah. doing the thing, the wing thing, and the lips or right. whatever, and right, yeah, all that. Well, that didn't exist after a, at a certain point. That didn't exist, and then and then it existed. Well, and I think we can say up top that basically this is a thought experiment, right? Nobody get too upset. No, none of these characters or concepts exist in a total vacuum, coexisting along with Turner and with Jagger and with rock and roll stage shows. You've got Elvis, you've got Little Richard, you got Chuck Berry, you've got, I mean. Frankly, you've got like Southern tent church revivals where the spirit of the Lord is imitated through gyration, right? Like, which, you know, some artists, I think, point all the way back to there. We've seen that depicted in movies and such. There's a lot of ingredients in this stew. But what's been forgotten about this recipe and a lot of retellings, I can agree, is the presence of this particular black woman, Tina Turner. Let's just, just for everybody else that wants sort of a primer about her, she was born um, in my home state. Tennessee. Oh, uh, she yeah. was anime Bullock, which I always every time I see the Simpsons episode where uh Homer finds his mom who's played by Glenn Close, who's been lost because she's been on the lamb because she's like blew up Mr. Burns's germ factory <laughs> in the 60s. And she has a, a fa- she has all these fake IDs, and one's called one says Muddy May Suggins. And for some reason, when I read that, I always think about your private dance. I always think that's Tina Turner. Anna Mae Bullock was her name. She well, was born around Thanksgiving Day yeah. uh, in 39. She she gets associated later with St. Louis at the start of her career because that's where Ike will come out of, et cetera. But as she will immortalize in song later, you're correct. She spent a lot of her younger years in Nutbush, Tennessee. I did spend in my earlier years lots of times in a car going places to see things that I just were things that are I treks of things I wanted to see. And I did a a West 
Tennessee excursion to one, try to find anything in Jackson regarding Carl Perkins or Carl Perkins home. And then okay. I wanted to see where Nutbush was. And th- and where I realized where it was is I saw a Nutbush city limit sign. And underneath those three words, it had the word unincorporated, <laughs> which means it is small <laughs> AF. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, we talked about where Loretta Lynn was from. Right. And like that wasn't even a real place. Like that was just a a name they gave to the streets she lived on or something, right? It wasn't actually recognized by the state. Uh, but her childhood is yeah. not great. Her, her mom flees the family to get away from an abusive husband when Tina's like 11. And then she and her sisters move around quite a bit. Different family members are involved. Eventually, by her teens, where everything kind of happens for her, it's, it's in St. Louis. So she gets a job in a hospital. Like, these are things that, you know, we had, I mean... I didn't know any of these things. Um, And she started going out with her sister. And it's in one of these clubs that's called the Manhattan Club. And it's in the mid-50s. And she sees a band perform that's called the Kings of Rhythm. Let's talk about the Kings of Rhythm. Okay, so this group is an offshoot of a large, big band ensemble. So again, remember, this is the 50s. So you got to go all the way back there and and, and think that there is... What is before what we now term rock and roll, right? And so you've got things coming out of big band and blues and all that. So there's this big band ensemble, the Top Hatters. And they used to play at dances, and they were really big as a big band in, in a very classic sense of the phrase, right? They were a whole bunch of musicians, like over 30 sometimes. And they would just play sheet music arrangements, right? When it's that many people, you just pass out the sheet music. Everybody plays their part. So there's a ton of people involved in this endeavor, I mean, just think of trying to corral 30 musicians into a regularly performing crew that plays every night. And they eventually have a a literal split. So one chunk of them insists on continuing to play dance band jazz, and they will call themselves Dukes of Swing. And then the other faction becomes something sort of different, and they call themselves the Kings of Rhythm. And standing at the head of that rebel alliance is a man who goes by the name Ike Turner. Here is... Ike describing what he wanted to do with this group. And he said, quote, we wanted to play the blues, Boogie Woogie and Roy Brown and Jimmy Liggins and Roy Milton. And, and like, do you know those names? No. Notice it, he names artists and older forms of music because there is not a term for rock and roll yet. No. And so there are, there are cover bands. They're doing live renditions of things that were like on the jukebox, right? Um, and then they got recommended for a steady weekend gig by this guy, maybe, who has something to do with Memphis, too, named B.B. King. Oh, wow. And then he introduces him to another guy who's in Memphis that maybe you've heard of named Sam Phillips. So, okay, this is and a great example. That happens. This is, yeah, this is what I'm saying, right? Like, none of this exists in a vacuum. Here we are. We're already bumping up against the man that gave us Elvis. And a funny side note before we get into the rock and roll deep end here. We, these two bands come out of the split, Dukes of Swing and Kings of Rhythm. I read this whole thing that, to me, is hilarious, which is in the days after they split up, the story goes that they kept this rivalry going between them, and every two weeks or so, they'd pull two flatbed trucks next to each other somewhere, Ooh. and they and one band would get on one, and the other band would get on the other, and they'd literally do an open-air Battle of the Band showdown against each other. I think this should happen again. I think we should <laughs> reintroduce this concept. The, my favorite festival video thing of like the song, the music bleeding is uh faith no more is playing at a festival and 
Mike Patton is singing something kind of quietly, or it may not even be Faith No More. It might be Mike Patton with just some group, and he, I think he's like singing, like it's beautiful, whatever he's singing, and you can hear Corey Taylor, like <laughs> not 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 his band, but Corey Taylor singing, and he's like he's like, how you motherfuckers doing? Whatever, whatever. And Mike Patton goes, shut the fuck up. It's like amazing. So we need to talk about the most important piece that's here for for me is that Ike and the Kings of Rhythm get connected with Sam Phillips and he invites them to Memphis and they know they need a single like there's not that even the idea of putting together an album it's like they need a single they need to record something get on the radio and there's a guy in the band who plays sax and his name's Jackie Brinston and he suggests they write a song about this car that just came out the Rocket 88 Oldsmobile Put your hands in the air if you ever had an Oldsmobile. Just put, put your hands in the air if you've ever been like uh, criticizing country music for all the songs they write about cars and trucks uh, and realize that that started a long, long time ago with a few gentlemen yeah. in the early 50s. Long story short, they do this, right? Uh, the song gets credited when it is released to Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats, not to Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm, which is what Ike Turner was hoping. Uh, it's a huge success, but all the egos in the band cause it to implode because people are like, is Jackie the leader? Is Ike the leader? Nobody can decide. Ike keeps the name somehow, you know, one of these things, ownership, uh, reforms the Kings of Rhythm with totally different dudes. This is something he will do more than once during his lifetime, and a, a pretty big impact is made by this song. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. I get it. This was before everything else. And it really goes down in history as like the first rock and roll song. Oh, yeah. That most people, there could be a lot of people listening right now. They're like, what the fuck's this song? Spoiler alert. No one makes any money. Of course. Right. Yeah. And Ike's name's not on it. It's got Jackie Brinston's name on it. By the way, when you do the Sun Studio tour in Memphis, there's part of the tour where they talk about the song. And then they play the entire song at an ungodly deafening volume <laughs> for a tour for anything. So, so you've really talk. heard you it. You can't talk. It's so loud. You've yeah. really heard it. You've heard it in your bones. Uh, so yeah. that, that's 1951. Next few years, Ike's going to work at Sam Rec Sun Records with Sam Phillips, not at Sam Records with Sun Phillips. And then in 1954, he relocates the band. <laughs> They all moved to East St. Louis. They they literally live together in a house, and Ike runs this thing like a tight ship, right? So first, no drugs and alcohol. Uh, that's a rule he breaks later, but early in his career, he's pretty serious about it. Controls what they wear on stage, uh, and he gets them in the St. Louis club circuit, which sounds like a weird place to break, but we talk about this a lot. This early in rock and roll, remember that everything is regional. So she... Goes to see the Kings of Rhythm, which we already set up, and she decides she wants to sing with them. He does not entertain this. Uh, so she goes 
to a, a secondary measure, which is at the time her sister is dating the drummer. And Perfect. he slips her a microphone in between sets and she essentially forces her own audition in the room. Uh, it, it works. Ike is sold. Anna May quickly becomes a featured singer for the band. She gets melted into wax for the first time in 1958, but the name at that point is Little Ann, and the song is called yeah. Box Top. And then the Tina thing comes next. So why does he call her Tina? Yeah, they wanted to give her a stage name, and Ike had been reading these comic books like Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and Nioka of the Jungle Girl, like strong warrior women. Um, which is interesting, like the irony too, yeah. um, considering what a douchebag he is. So he makes it <laughs> Tina because it rhymes with Sheena. <laughs> you um, know, it's, it's and, real scientific. But here's the thing that is so fucked up. And he adds Turner and then he trademarks it. Wait, 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 wait. You mean so he can like transfer it? Like he could just fire her and hire a different Tina Turner? Yes, it's like, oh you know, the guys in Kiss being replaced and just Holy playing shit. infinitely in Vegas or whatever. Listen, like, yeah. say what you want about Ike Turner. There's a lot of negative things to say. Like evil genius brilliant, though. Like to think about how early he was on all this stuff. This is stuff that we see 10, 15, 20, 30 years later in the record industry for sure. Right. But he was he was pioneering being an evil genius. Uh, and you mentioned that Ike moved her to the front of the band, right? That's a awesome story of how that happened because this is another one of those like happy accidents in rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sliding doors, weird thing where Ike wrote this song for a guy and Tina's there to sing back up and the guy doesn't show up. It's kind of like Ooh La La by the, by faces, you know, Rod Stewart was hung over and didn't show up and someone else has, you know, got to sing that vocal. So Tina sings the song. This is like that thing with Bobby Gentry that we talked about recently where she uh, was just making a demo for Ode to Billy Joe and then it gets picked up with, with her voice, right? He, he right. Ike, is planning to use this thing with Tina just as the demo that he'll have the other vocals come back and re-record later. But a St. Louis radio DJ hears it and says, no, 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 no. This You should send this to a record label. So they do. They get a deal. But the deal now becomes contingent on Tina being front and center in this band, which before yeah. she was just she was just in the stable of singers. So Tina becomes the front person for this band, and they release this amazing song that's called A Fool in Love. And it's a song that's giving me like my hair sticking up on my arms now. You just a fool, you know you're in really her vocal track that's on it so it's big enough of a hit that they go on tour um and then they get to do bandstand with dick clark with like in october of that year well and it's this is really fun to be able to now with youtube go and find all this stuff 
pretty quickly, right? All these really early television performances. And now Ike has something to work with. With Tina out front, he's able to create what he calls the Ike and Tina Turner Review, which includes the Kings of Rhythm and a girl group, the Ike Cats. These are all like separate entities that he merges on stage. And he is there in the background, but in sort of the center of everything as the band leader. And he makes this outfit tour their faces off. They are road warriors. Things I read said that there would be 90 days straight where they would get no nights off. It's 61. So where are they going on tour? They're stuck touring the Chitlin circuit because they're having to play to segregated uh, audiences. This is a fascinating, fascinating point. If you don't know what the Chitlin circuit is, you probably heard it if if you paid attention to the birth of rock and roll at all. But it's basically a collection of venues throughout the U.S. that exist during segregation, specifically for and catering to black audiences. It actually gets this official term Chitlin Circuit after the fact in reference to Ike and Tina Turner, which I find also really fascinating. It wasn't like called that when it existed, but an article in the 70s about Ike and Tina will, will coin it that. And then now we historically refer to it that way. But the scene existed for decades before that, and it grew out of the efforts of a guy named Denver D. Ferguson in Indianapolis. Uh, as far back as 1930, shouts to Indy. The Ike and Tina Turner Review, which is what they're called, became this amazing live show. And as soon as you ever have opened up your, you know, jelly-filled weird eyeballs and seen Tina Turner on TV on in the 60s, like, it's extraordinary. Like, she was extraordinary then as a performing artist and a dancer and those dancers behind her. Like, visually, it's just absolutely unbelievable so the reputation that they gather the proofs in the pudding right in front of you that they're this unbelievable live show so the word of mouth gets around and then they end up breaking through to desegregated audiences louder than life the biggest rock festival in america is back with the loudest lineup ever food fighters green day Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Limp Bizkit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheed and Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. And so they don't just have to play the the chitlin circuit so this is huge because this is a band led by a black woman woman that's playing to white audiences in 61 it, it, as you would imagine it gets a lot of attention two very important people for the purposes of this story in particular will come into the fold in the next few years the first one is bob krasnow for all of you this is a huge deal so bob krasnow who shows up in this story he went on to co-found the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, that's just a short list or a short and easy way of saying this dude is on the short list of most influential rock and roll business people of all time. Like, yeah, we should do an episode on Bob Krasnow's bad decisions. Like, because <laughs> we love bad decisions <laughs> and evil managers, bad, bad business decisions. There are some great goofs in his repertoire, including letting Queen buy back the rights of their catalog because he hated them. <laughs> 
like he just hated their music and thought it was not good. Uh, but let's not get distracted by that. Yeah. So here's the short version. So after the sun releases happen, they're on like 10 labels. Yeah. I mean, 60s. like literally, like you're not exaggerating. They're, they're literally yeah. on like 10 or a dozen labels. Yeah, so there's no like real stability with that whole scene. And eventually they land on, it's a label called Loma, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers that is run by Bob Krasno. Um, and then, of course, he becomes their manager. Right? Well, you see how that works? And that connection leads them to their first charting album, Live, the Ike and Tina Turner Show in 1965. And this leads them to the second connection that becomes so important. Now, as part of this growing success, more people start coming out to see what the fuss is all about, right? We already said that. They're playing the friggin' South. They're also playing the coast. They end up on the Sunset Strip in 1965, and there is a music producer in the audience named Phil Spector. And he has the gig of a on-screen music director for a concert film that's being produced. That's new to me. This is interesting. And that'll be called The Big TNT Show. Now, this which is... It, it's what it comes after the other show, yeah, right? Yeah, so there's another show in 64 called the Teenage Music International Show. T-A-M-I is how you'll see it abbreviated or written yeah. about. And these are both amazing rock and roll artifacts. They capture a whole bunch of early rock legends ripping it up on stage. And just as a heads up, uh, go to YouTube, type in Tammy Show, Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. and you'll see Mick Jagger before he ever met Tina Turner and you'll notice those dance moves are a little bit different. Uh, also, like yeah. Mick, like Keith's never been to the dentist too. But anyway, <laughs> so Phil, Phil invites Ike and Tina to be part of the Big T and T show. So I, I put clips in the show notes. Make sure you watch this. It is, it is absolutely jaw dropping, and it is important to the story that we're telling today because there's this idea of Tina Turner as the front woman and the movement she brings to the stage. Like that's very important for what we're talking about. And it is on full display here, but the way she interacts with Ike, the way she interacts with the dancers, like you've already sort of mentioned this, the way she just moves her body. It is, it's astounding. Like I pulled it up and just got totally transfixed and lost for a while. Just watching. This is the most exciting clip in the show notes. So Oh, it's so enjoy. Good. And Phil is so impressed yeah. with the performance that they turn out. He buys out their contract so that he can produce Ike and Tina next. He literally just goes and, and is like, here's 20 grand, which at the time is like $200,000. 200 grand. Just let me yeah. do this. And this is a rock and roll bedtime story of its own. Oh my right God, in the middle it of really episode. is. It really is. Because this is where apparently people refer to the beginning of the end for Spectre. He starts to lose his shit, lose his mind. Phil, Phil comes up on the show a lot, obviously. It, I revisited some Phil hijinks recently when I was on the Only Three Lads podcast talking about him producing the Ramones. Uh, but if you remember much about Phil, he is obsessed and he's hard driving and there is all sorts of lore about how he behaves specifically around the recording of this song that he will do with Ike and Tina Turner. What Phil wants and all he wants is to record Tina's voice. Like that's all he's like, I want to put Tina in front of the wall of sound. And then he goes to her and Ike's house to negotiate a deal. If you want to waste an afternoon, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, I would call it the second best link in the show notes uh, to stereo audio of the sessions. And you literally, I, I, it's crazy to me that these exist and are just on the internet. But you literally get to hear Phil giving cues and yelling random stuff like who hit the cowbell? And like, like he just, 
just losing his mind, uh, yelling. And then you get to hear you get to hear Tina do this vocal raw, and it is just the most famous anecdote from this session is that Tina gets so hot while she's trying to record this for Phil that she just takes off her top and she's like just in her bra recording that song. Other famous facts and rumors about this recording session. 21 session musicians involved. Costs over 21 grand, which is, again, close to $200,000 in modern money. Uh, Leon Russell and Glenn Campbell both play on this recording. Uh, and it's said, I do not have this substantiated, but I have heard and read, Brian Wilson is in the studio, like in a corner, totally transfixed and silent, watching Tina perform. That's so cool. I hope that's really true. So here's... Two big, dramatic, completely opposite effects that happen from this very famous recording session, you know, in rock and roll. It's a total dismal failure here in the United States, a surprising failure. And like we said, this is sort of what pushes Phil to like the brinks of uh, the freight ends of sanity. Really, he quits the music industry and becomes a recluse for several years. But in Europe... Remember, I said Tina's yeah. big as Madonna. Yeah, it went to number t- number two. Uh, there's another person who'd been hanging around this session and around Phil at the time. Not just Leon, not just Glenn, not just Brian Wilson. This is a Tina quote: "Quote Mick Jagger was a friend of Phil Spector, and the time we cut River Deep Mountain High, Mick was around. Uh, this is at Gold Star, Phil's favorite studio in L.A. I remembered him." But I never talked to him. He's not the type to make you feel you could just come up and talk to him. Mick, I guess, thought the record was great. He caught our act a couple of times. He always said he liked to see girls dance. So he was excited about our show and thought it would be different for the people in England. And so Ike and Tina accept an invitation in 1966 to open for the Rolling Stones in Europe. Yeah. And now we come to the main attraction. What everyone came to this episode for, this is how we get to answer the letter. So did Jagger get his moves from Tina Turner? Uh, So over the years, Mick has been fairly consistent in attributing his moves to a few people. They're just like talking points in the Mick Jagger repertoire. He mentions his mom, because that's a cute rock star move, acknowledging your mother's influence. Though this feels like a weird place to acknowledge your mother's influence. Like, yeah, my sexy dancing, I learned from mama. Uh, Yeah, that's messed up. (laughs) But he will mention... Uh, the list of who I would consider like the classic early rock soul guys. He was on Stern, like not very long ago. And Stern was asking him about this. And here's some stuff he said to Stern. I think that if, quote, I think that if you're a lead singer in a band, you have to be an extrovert and you watch other people and you copy other people. And I just used to watch all these James Brown clips and would go to see him and Chuck Berry and all these people. And they had great moves. All these people I adore, like Jerry Lee Lewis, they had great moves. They used certain moves repeatedly. You would go like, oh, hey, he's going to do that move. Now he's going to stand at the piano. Now he's going to kick the chair. But when I was just younger, I did crazy things. I used to jump off the stage into the organ pit in these theaters on my knees, and my knees would be killing me. I've seen Little Richard do that, so I thought, I can do that. And here's here's an older quote that harkens back to James Brown, because that becomes one of the talking points, is that he will say, 
I took this from James Brown, sort of. Uh, then we traveled to the U.S., and I caught James Brown at the Apollo Theater in New York, and that was a huge influence. It wasn't just the moves he made. It was the energy he put into it, uh, and that was amazing. And he didn't mention Tina. Well, not in what I could find, really. And initially, the main quotes I found from her it seemed to surface in the last like half dozen years or so and sort of become a talking point around her her pushing a new memoir. Like there's a quote where she says, Mick wanted to dance and I was a dancer, but he never gave me the credit. He said his mother taught him how to dance, which we backed up, but we worked with him, I guess her and the Iquettes, we worked with him in the dressing room and we taught him how to pony. Um, so, Bryant, since you were probably doing this when you were growing up with uh, <laughs> your dad at work, what is the pony? Shut up. I didn't, uh, I didn't. I didn't know what this was. <laughs> this is actually a great question. Uh, I say, so I found a YouTube tutorial. <laughs> if you want to learn how to do it, I put it in the show notes. I put more than one. It's a 1960s dance move that basically consists of like moving back and forth and waving your arms. It barely constitutes an actual dance move, in my opinion. Uh, undeniably, what I would now categorize as Jagger esque. Uh, these tutorials, though, I, I. I tell you you should go look at them because one is shot in a bedroom and one is shot in some sort of midwestern living room or dining room so i don't care as much about the substance uh but the vids are totally worth the watch because it's just funny that someone was like set up my camera over there let me teach people how to do the pony uh next to these antique heirlooms uh have you ever shot a dance tutorial in your living room or dining room that's going to be negative, Brian. No, never done it. Uh, so, okay. Basically, because of the fact that I saw these Tina quotes from around the t- same time she was selling a book, and because Mick always points to her precursors, I was ready to just rack this up to being a matter of what I mentioned at the top, right? The idea that none of these characters or concepts exist in a vacuum, and that Tina was surely part of the cocktail, et cetera, et cetera. But then I dug a little further, and I found something. I, I, I mentioned earlier that there is a 1971 Rolling Stone piece by Ben Fong Torres in the show notes. Honestly, once I found this, I was like, do we just discuss this article as the basis for an entire episode about Tina? Because it's wild, folks. Uh, Let me just tell you how it starts. It starts with Ben Fong Torres showing up at Ike and Tina Turner's house. So this is 7071. I think it must be 71 because I think the article comes out at the end of 71. Ike is asleep. He's, he writes, he says, I'm told Ike is asleep upstairs, and Tina has one of the kids at, like, baseball practice. And so the staff of the house lets him in. So the first several paragraphs of this article is him recounting what's in the house, like, just walking around and being like, and then there's a bookshelf, and it's got this, like, guide about sex. And then there's, like, uh, these three novels on this bookshelf. And then in this room, there's a coffee table. And, like, so that's wild. Uh, Also, he mentions repeatedly that it's a $100,000 house. (laughs) (laughs) Which in 2023 is just hysterically funny. uh, Because he's, like, just pointing out all the excesses that they have done to this house. And you're like, a hundred grand? Wild. Uh, I I would guess, quick math here, that that's probably two million or something right now um and so anyway uh in the course of this interview here's the meat they discuss the 1966 tour which is remember this is 71 so this is fairly recent history and this is when they go with the stones in europe now it's important to point out that when you hear about the stones and ike and tina touring together there's two times that are usually being referenced and sometimes people don't actually mean the 1966 tour they mean the 1969 tour the 69 tour happens in america 
So that that's a real fire starter, right? And so that's just a couple years before this. But in Europe, it's 66, which is still pretty early. And this is what she says. Quote, I remember I wasn't mingling too much, referring to the tour. Ike and I were having problems at the time, and we stayed mad at each other. But I would always see Mick in the wings, and I thought, wow, he must really be a fan. And then she goes on to say, now, I would come out and watch him sometimes at, you know, when they would go on, and Mick would beat the tambourine. He wouldn't dance. And then, lo and behold, he comes to America, and I see him, and he's doing all the moves. And so then I understood what he'd been doing in the wings. He learned a lot of steps, and I tried to teach him the popcorn, which I got to tell you, I didn't look up what that dance is, but I'm sure there's tutorials on YouTube. Lots of songs about it. (laughs) But, uh, and I taught him other steps we were doing, but he can't do them like that. He has to do it his way. Yeah, and so my exhibit A that I mentioned at the very top of our episode here is about the 69 tour, and it's the Gimme Shelter documentary. And so there's a marvelous scene where they're in the edit bay with all the quarter inch, like they're actually looking at the footage and they're watching Ike and Tina on stage and she's singing, I've been loving you too long by Otis Redding and turns that from a romantic song to just a sex capade of whatever, how long that song is. And they're watching her at the end when there's like the crescendo and where she, you think that she's saying sock it to me. And you're not exactly sure she's saying sock it. Nope. She's got the microphone and the microphone is being used uh, in a very like, yep. you, you know, yep. one of the ways that I'm just imagine what I'm talking about. So, so, so as a, a young, impressionable guy, like getting into music and learning about it, like uh, I, I thought something else was happening there for sure. So this is where I'm telling you, you have to go read this Rolling Stone article, if you've not read it. There's a whole section where they talk about that. That specifically comes up. That particular song and how they were performing it at the time and how Tina's like, now we've just turned it to be straight up about sex and they're letting me do this on stage. And there's also these like undertones of Ike and his propensity for violence and sexual violence like in the way she talks about it. It is quite the time capsule and quite the artifact, knowing what we know now, to just envision like, all the things we don't really know at the point that this article gets published. But this article gets published at a really interesting time. And, you know, we're, we're going to sort of stop here, but we could do tons of episodes about Tina. We've barely scratched the surface on Tina, her influence, her history. And, and this article publishes right after another watershed moment for Ike and Tina. There's sort of, in their early history, I'd consider two. One of them is is the Phil Spector sessions. The second one, though, is when they decide to take a song that they'd been covering on stage. This is something that I think gets forgotten. Their show is like a musical review. So it wasn't just, hey, we're doing our songs. They're doing a bunch of songs, right? They're doing, it's, it's more like something you would see in Vegas or you would see at like a theme park now just because that's how things have gotten relegated. But this was yeah. this was the idea, right? Like to move it from the Chitlin circuit, to move it into mainstream. It, it became this, we're going to do all these, a musical review like you would see on Broadway. So tons of other songs. So during this, they were taking pop hits and incorporating them. So you get this Otis Redding song and they turn it into their own thing. And they, they decide to take a Creedence Clearwater Revival song called Proud Mary 
and incorporate it into their show. And when they go into the studio, Tina starts fighting to record that song. Ike is not hot on it at first. I mean, it's a bunch of white dudes singing about a riverboat, right? It's not necessarily their brand. Proud America, keep on burning. Like it's like that slow. And they turn it into their song. I mean, it is a signature staple. And anytime you hear, I mean, half the articles you, you read last week referred to the Proud Mary singer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's how she got tagged. And and that becomes a watershed moment. And then this is, you know, there is a narrative there, and there's a couple of great pieces in the show notes that we haven't really gone into about what that set up for her, where she was emotionally and in her relationship and what that set up for her in terms of being able to break entirely free from Ike, finally. And we have purposely tried to skirt around the topic of Ike as the problematic figure that he is, uh, so that we're not pulling away focus from Tina on this show. But that has to be mentioned, that that Ike is just a, a real problematic character in rock and roll history. But at the same time, part of something, and part of giving us something that, you know, if you follow this line of thinking here, the woman who really defined rock and roll. I mean, if we if we thread that needle, we thread it at the beginning that Mick Jagger's moves define rock and roll now. Yeah. And Mick Jagger clearly got his moves from the side of the stage when Ike and Tina toured with him in 1966. Regardless of any of this, we know the two of them continued to be friendly and had quite a chemistry. And I don't know if you saw a lot of these headlines, but in the last week, there's been tons of stuff pointing to this mutual admiration. He tweeted, of course, or somebody in his team tweeted about her. And Ike and Tina, when they were together, and then Tina on her own covered Stone songs, like most of her career. Yeah, uh, she would cover, she would, she would, she would close sets with Stone songs. And, and, and I feel like it's important to mention uh, the as sort of an end cap on this discussion, the, the Live Aid performance, 1985, Philadelphia. Because yeah. it's a great thing. And I know it's in the show notes and it's, it's worthwhile to watch that too. So you can see the two of them together away from all of this, everything that's been before her and everything else. And then seeing them on stage together, it's really a, it's a real cherry on top of this conversation. Well, and sure. on a recent, fairly recent conversation, on this show, we talked about Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake and the great debacle that was the Super Bowl performance and the wardrobe malfunction, quote unquote. And yeah. I mean, Mick and Tina did that in 1985. It's startlingly similar what they pull off during Live Aid in terms of, and, and there's, I read a couple of, and I think they're in the show notes, a couple of descriptions of Tina talking about how that all came about and how, you know, Mick said, I want to pull your skirt off at the end of this. And she has like this bodysuit on and she describes all the stuff she had on. And it it felt in reading this, it felt so much like reading the descriptions of, of Janet and Justin and those costume designers saying that they thought they had a better plan, right? Like if everything works right, this is going to be perfect. And, And honestly, if everything had worked right, it would have probably gone down in history being compared to the 1985 Live 8 performance because it is startlingly similar. And at one point, it's the one editorial comment I'd like to make. When he comes out, he he's wearing like this weird pair of trousers and a blue t-shirt. And, and it's like, yeah, that, yeah, it's like Mick can just wear whatever, like clearly, because yeah. he's I, I'm like, are those my dad's slacks pinned up with two belts? Like, what are you wearing right now? And then yeah. by the end of it, he rips the shirt off, runs off stage and they redress him. 
Uh, yes. Yeah, it, huh? it's all super bizarre. And then it ends, culminates with him pulling Tina's skirt. And it's right around the time that Jagger and Bowie do that Dancing in the Streets debacle video that you can watch on YouTube where they like take out all the music and it's just them pointing and dancing. <laughs> it's like that's Mick is wearing that kind of outfit. Uh, live yeah. Yeah, for sure. The one thing I wanted to point out that that's significant about Tina for me is that Tina had overcame. She she said like I meant we we mentioned this. Uh, we were talking you and I were talking about this last week about endurance and like how she was able to do this. She didn't drink, do drugs or anything, and so she just stayed the course. And when she decided to write about this relationship, she didn't write about her marriage to Ike the way people would now. Cause she left pretty much everything in and, and people got to, he was immediately without question vilified as like a terrible, awful person. But what, and it's like, it takes a lot of courage to, to talk about your personal life in that way, especially when that's something like that awful has happened to you. But what I thought was worse that I've watched and it was in like Tina's documentary that's on HBO or max or <laughs> yeah, max that's what it's called. Um, that she had to answer questions about that shit. Like, you know, basically until she unplugged from this thing and until and she to, moved to, well moved and, to Switzerland. I mean, here's, here's the thing about that, that you, you make a really good point. I was thinking about like my early earliest experiences with Tina and honestly before I heard her music I knew she was in an abusive relationship I honestly think that's true and that's that sucks I I think it's weird that no one was calling her the queen of rock and roll until last week yeah it's like I really wish they had done that like yeah about six years ago ten years ago yeah and started calling her the queen of rock and roll but like that was thrown around pretty easily last week when she passed away um yeah. And I think that her influence, like, I think for some people, it's just sort of like coming to light, like, oh, um, Mick Jagger watched her to learn how to dance. I mean, it, um, we didn't well, even. That's a big deal. We didn't even get to, you know, past 85. So we didn't we didn't get to the quote unquote comeback. We didn't get to the biopic and the movie. We didn't get to yeah. all of the influence she's had on other performers. If you want to hear us talk more about Tina uh, become a Patreon subscriber. We just put up an episode late last week in the wake of this where we go through her catalog a little bit more and are able to talk a little bit more about her full career. It's just uh, five or ten bucks a month if you support the show. You'll get that and everything else that we've released up on our Patreon. It all becomes retroactive. So if if you pay today, you get a ton of back episodes and, and anything new that we produce. And we're very, very thankful for the folks who have already done that. Uh, and if you want to get involved in the show, if you have comments about Tina, um, we'd love to hear them and read them. All you have to do is send us a note. It is uh, wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.